one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space, episode 534, for the week of Monday, October 28th, 2013. Um, Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer. Glad to be here, man. Glad to have you with us. And welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. I'm ready, subject to any unexpected hardware, software, or whateverware failures. Well, don't jinx us, because actually we've got things up and running and ready to go. So, while things are working, let's keep going. And to start things off, we're going to talk with a piece of hardware that is no longer working, because its purpose has been served. Well, yeah, it's kind of sort of working for the time being, anyway. Um, At about uh, 4.55 this morning, uh, the... uh, uh, the automated transfer vehicle, ATV-4, uh, also known as the Albert Einstein, left the safe harbor of the of the International Space Station for the last time. Uh, its purpose is completely done, almost. It's been stuffed with uh, a lot of refuse from the ISS, and it will eventually burn up in the Earth's atmosphere. Now, the interesting thing about this one uh, is that before it makes it de- its descent into the atmosphere on November 2nd, um, AT fly right under the ISS, about 120 kilometers or 75 miles below the International Space Station. And what the game plan for this particular uh, vehicle is going to be is that the ISS astronauts are going to observe uh, ATV-4 as it goes right into the atmosphere. There's also a test monitoring instrument, sort of analogous to a black box, that's on board ATV-4. Now, they tried this on ATV-2. It didn't work out all that well. It did work pretty well on the Japanese HTV, though. But So they're going to try it again here on the Albert Einstein. And this little black box is essentially going to go ahead and take readings of the vehicle as it re-enters. Also, the astronauts on board ISS are going to be watching it as it also disintegrates into the atmosphere. Hopefully, it'll fall right into the Pacific Ocean, harmless, and and everything will be just fine. So, I guess the purpose of watching this thing and, and taking all the telemetry as it augers in is to essentially design better spacecraft uh, for, well, the infamous design to demise type stuff that we had brought up on this tele- on this uh, uh, program several times, uh, sort of trying to go ahead and mitigate space debris and, and so on. So essentially it's, it's to make 
sure, you know, bet, design better vehicles that will just, you know, disintegrate into the Earth's atmosphere. So even in death, uh, the a- ATV number four, this penultimate mission is going to be helping design better spacecraft. So again, good way to go, ESA. Good job on this particular vehicle. And there is one more ATV left. Uh, ATV five is planned. However, um, after that, as some of you out there may know, uh, the ATV will be repurposed as the service module for uh, the U.S. Uh, Orion spacecraft that NASA is designing. So uh, one more flight to go for ATV, but uh, it will be reincarnated as the uh, service module for Orion. So there you have it. You know, this is something we've talked about before on the show, uh, the fact that it the number of resupply vehicles, even though some of the old traditional ones like ATV are leaving with one left, you've got the other companies, the private companies, um, Orbital and SpaceX that are coming in to take its place. But, you know, ATV it was a great vehicle and was kind of sad to see it go. As you alluded to there, Sawyer, uh, the ATV is going to continue on in another guise. Uh, I was looking at the NASA website really fast here, and the next mission to fly for ATV, the final mission, will launch in mid-2014. That flight, of course, will be the final flight for ATV-5. And I believe, uh, just to fill in some some gaps, it's um, about 32 feet long, about the size of a traditional uh, London double-decker bus, if anybody has seen one of those and it is the largest and heaviest vehicle in the current uh, ISS resupply fleet but uh, we have two other vehicles waiting in the wings of course one of them uh, the uh, SpaceX Dragon is set to go I believe the beginning of next year as we quoted from last week and of course the uh, Cygnus is set to go by Orbital Sciences. That is set to go this year in December. So we're, <laughs> you know, the, 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 just because ATV is going away doesn't mean that cargo is, is not going to stop going, going to stop going to the ISS. Exactly. And uh, fun fact, the name of ATV-5, if this... Uh, if this is correct, is going to be the Georges Lemaitre, which is named after the Belgian astronomer. And yes, I used to take French. Yep. Um, to to look, I'm looking at that right now, Sawyer. Uh, he uh, was the one who proposed the theory of the expansion of the universe. So uh, again, opt and a, a very good uh, a very good name for this final vehicle. Exactly. And as you mentioned, that's supposed to launch sometime in 2014. However, Albert Einstein, well, we won't know its last words, just like the real man itself as that re-enters the atmosphere. Ooh, I just got deep there. Alrighty then, so let's continue along to our next story. And this one, while ATV is undocking to the ISS, we're going to kind of redock ourselves to the space station. There's an interesting piece written by Joel Ackenbach in the Washington Post back in September of this past year, basically called The Skies, The Limits, asking, essentially, what is the ISS for? To quote the 
Byline, the International Space Station is one of humanity's greatest engineering triumphs. But what is it for? Well, there was a guest post on October 25th in the Washington Post, and this is by William Bianco. And he wrote a great piece, basically about why the ISS actually matters and what it's for. He pointed out about the principal investigators, and that's the big mark that he used for this. Um, as he says, to quote the payoff, besides just spinoffs, quote, a better way to judge the productivity of the ISS in the short term is to use criteria that are familiar to any research scientist. The likelihood that ISS research projects yield published papers, the willingness of individuals from outside NASA to become principal investigators, or PIs, on ISS projects, and the trend in the amount of research taking place on the ISS. And part of it he takes a look at is those that are actually NASA-sponsored as opposed to private. According to the NASA database of ISS research projects, there are 278 projects where NASA is the sponsoring agency and the primary goal was scientific research. I mean, that's a lot as is, and we're talking since the start in 2000. Of course, during the early years, there were fewer, and then post-Columbia, there were fewer. But after shuttle flights began and after the ISS grew in size as well as crew, there was a drastic increase. And, and they have some really interesting charts here. There's one of the identity of ISS PIs. Um, all of NASA is a little less than 25%. NASA with academic or corporate affiliation is about 25%. But all academic or corporate, we're talking 75% of the PIs. And in terms of publication rates... So far, about 50% as of October of 2013 have actually been published, with a prediction over time of about 90%. Why is that significant? Well, according to the article, it says that many journals have acceptance rates below 10%, and already half of the ISS research being done is making it into these publications with almost 100%, close to it, expected in the future. I mean, if you think one of the examples they use is something we've talked about before on the show, AMS, the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer, and its um, and its major finding recently in the search for dark matter. So the ISS is playing a bigger role than you think, and they've got the facts to prove it. Yeah, Sawyer, real quick question for you. They mentioned the U.S. That, that's only the Destiny module, correct? Or are they talking about the ISS as a whole? They're just talking about the ISS natural, uh, National Laboratory, correct? The main basis of the science that they're talking about is related to NASA and NASA-sponsored. It doesn't mention specifically anything about Roscosmos, Russia, ESA, JAXA, any of the other organizations, but specifically focuses on NASA. So that's my assumption. Yeah, because I remember, uh, I think... One of the ISS astronauts over there, I want to say Luca Parmitano, had fired off a tweet saying, you know, well, people were asking how come the only only thing he's able to go ahead and is, is shoot pictures inside the Destiny module. And he said, well, a lot of the work that's going on inside the uh, the Russian segment is actually proprietary. So you can't really even show it take photographs of it while it's it's being worked on it, it is, it's that proprietary i was kind of wondering too if that was that was thrown into the mix or, or not but it's still an impressive array of uh of, of science going on number one number two is 
just what you were saying to get published to actually get into a journal you've only got like a 10 percent probability that your paper is going to get in there however if your experiment's flown on board ISS, it sounds to me like the odds are pretty darn good you're going to go ahead and get into that paper. So that's one, you know, if you're looking for recognition, call up Cassis and see if you've got an experiment that's worthy to fly on the ISS and get yourself published. It's that simple. <laughs> exactly. And I think the best way to sum up the whole article is just the last paragraph of the post from... WashingtonPost.com, and it sums up pretty much the science that they're doing. Quote, there's no guarantee that research on the ISS will cure cancer and global warming or earn their PIs a Nobel Prize. However, the data show that ISS research satisfies the basic conditions for good science, attracting outside researchers, engaging disciplinary debates, and generating publishable results. It is unrealistic to judge the ISS based on its short-term payoff. By that standard, virtually all basic research in the sciences would be judged a failure. Even given the data presented here, reasonable people can disagree about the benefits and costs of continued ISS operations. But to make a judgment about the long-term value of the ISS barely three years after its completion makes no more sense than tearing up a lottery ticket a week before the drawing. You've got to love that comment. Mark, again, I'm, I'm thinking about Dr. Samuel Ting's infamous slide that you brought up that slide still pops into my head every time excuse me every time i think of the iss that is you have an experiment you don't know what you're going to get you have some idea of what you might end up with but you might go off into another different direction altogether and and achieve a breakthrough that you never thought was even possible and I see stuff like that happening on the ISS, you know, on a on a regular basis. I'm thinking about two experiments offhand. There's one that I really want to find out what happened to, because it it, it dealt with uh, some MRSA research. And if everybody's had a MRSA infection, they know what that or or MRSA bacterial infection, they know what that's like. Um, I have it's touched my family, so I, I'd like to see what the research is uh, is on that. Uh, there, there's other, you know, there's other autoimmune stuff going on, and Sawyer, as you pointed out, who knows? The cure for cancer might be sitting on board the ISS eventually. Fingers crossed in that department. I can't guarantee that, but you never know. So, I mean, to to debunk what's going on on ISS, I think is 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 foolish right now, and I think um, I totally agree with the author. The, the facility's only been complete for about three years now. Don't knock it. Let's see what happens. We've got basically until 2020 to see what, uh, what research we can get out of this thing. And so far, I think it's going like gangbusters. I have to agree. I mean, just the amount of experiments that they've done. I mean, the, they mentioned it was over 270 of just the NASA-sponsored ones alone. You know, it's... Kind of like Lay's potato chips, you know, bet you can't eat just one. It's, you know, bet you can't pick just one that's the best. And that is our transition into our next segment, and that goes to Mark. So oftentimes it's really not that hard to come up with a favorite, to come up with a best or a worst. But in this case, not so easy. What I'm going to talk to you about is from the NASA blog 
called a lab aloft. And that is providing some really interesting and detailed blog entries by the staff of the International Space Station program. Now the ISS program scientist is Dr. Julie Robinson and about a week and a half ago she started a series of blog entries that begin the countdown to top research results from the space station. This was a presentation that they recently did, in case we missed it, in Beijing, China at the International Astronautical Conference. Now, in her first entry introducing this top 10 list, she said it's almost impossible to choose just one when you're presented of an assortment of worthy and valuable topics in a given theme. So she came up with her top 10 research projects from the ISS and presented them. Now there's a graphic, an illustration, that shows overlapping aspects of some of the recognized returns from ISS research. And it's like a Venn diagram with the circles that overlap. And the, uh, the three areas that, that she highlighted is discovery, earth benefits, and space exploration. And at the end of this blog entry, she says, I hope you'll enjoy the list and challenge you to take home at least one item here that touches you. And by sharing some of those top 10 research results from the space station with people in your orbit, we can continue the exploration. So let me give you some of those top 10. Now this started, the actual countdown started on Monday, October 21st. Today is Monday, October 28th. So number 10 was preventing bone loss mass in space through diet and exercise. Number 9 was understanding the mechanisms of osteoporosis and new drug treatments. Number 8 was hyperspectral imaging for water quality in coastal bays. Number 7 was colloid self-assembly using electrical fields for nanomaterials. Number 6 was new processes of cool flame combustion. Number five, which just posted today, is pathway for bacterial pathogens to become virulent. Now, four, five, three, two, and one will be posting this week with the final one on November 1st, if they follow the pattern they started last week. And I encourage you to go from blog entry to blog entry and find out some of the details of some of this science that literally can't be done anywhere else and is going to bring results for decades to come. Mark, again, that, that's just the exact reason why the ISS is so darn needed, because a lot of, a lot of the science can't be done down here. It can only be done in microgravity conditions. And as, as you pointed out, this is a, the, the ISS is really, truly a gem as far as the national laboratory is concerned. And so here again, this is a perfect dovetail to your story. And it proves again why we have to have this, this orbiting laboratory above our, our, our heads, period. I mean, it really shows that this thing is worth it. It was worth the time and trouble to construct. It was worth all the money to go ahead and put it in place. And, who knows what the next few years are going to yield while it's still in operation. And something that just occurred to me, 2020 may not be the end game for this thing. Uh, we'll just have to see how how the future plays out with this, because there's a possibility we may extend the ISS lifetime past 2020 if the vehicle is still in halfway decent shape. So 
Again, this would be a wonderful, wonderful pickup, Mark. Seriously. If you want more on ISS Science, we've got plenty of episodes for you uh, with Dr. Tara Rutley, who's one of the heads of ISS Science over at the Johnson Space Center. Uh, check out episode 325, um, episode 413, episode 501. We've got plenty of science updates, and there's some amazing stuff going on. So uh, thank you, Mark. And that will bring us to the end of round number one. And we are now ready to move to round number two. And just like last time, we've got a whole bunch of commercial space stuff to talk about. And we'll start off with Gene. Thanks, Sawyer. Uh, yeah, it wasn't, well, it was the best of times and worst of times over the weekend. On uh, Sunday, the long-awaited uh, Dream Chaser spacecraft from uh, Sierra Nevada Corporation made its first uh, I guess free flight uh, from uh, from over Edwards Air Force Base. The idea was to figure out how this thing was actually going to behave as as a lifting body as it was going to land. Now there was nobody inside the uh, the engineering test article or ETA, uh, as they're calling this particular craft. Uh, it was hoisted up by by helicopter and again drop tested much you know the same way that uh, uh, Enterprise was, uh, uh, the, our prototype orbiter, was launched from the back of a 747, except this was you know, from, a, from a sort of a, a chain helicopter type thing, and it was let go. And it did fly. It, it, it executed all the maneuvers wonderfully. The, the, the onboard computer behaved just absolutely perfectly. Then we got to the landing. Now, unfortunately, a mechanical problem on board the spacecraft uh, happened. The left landing gear apparently got stuck and didn't deploy properly, which unfortunately sent the test article well rolling over a little bit. the The, the Dream Chaser doesn't has has two uh, conventional landing gear, uh, but one of them the the front landing gear is not really a landing gear at all. It's more like a more like a skid, but uh, uh, this thing did not exactly perform the way we all wanted it to, uh, as far as the, the left the left landing gear wing. And now, as our uh, partner group, spaceflight group, had indicated on their website when they reported on the story, uh, this isn't the landing gear that the actual the actual Dream Chaser is going to use. Um, put a, a release from Sierra Nevada itself here. Uh, quote, following the release of the Dream Chaser spacecraft, automated flight control systems general, gently steered the vehicle to its intended glide slope. The vehicle adhered to the design flight trajectories throughout the flight profile. Less than a minute later, Dream Chaser smoothly flared and touched down at Edwards Air Force Base, runway 22L, right on the center line. Which, again, you know, the, the software was absolutely perfect. Then this mechanical failure happened, and uh, well, uh, you know, to to kind of sort of poo-poo the whole thing, I can't. This is a flight test. This is a test article. Did something bad happen? You bet. But are they going to go ahead, figure out what happened, and fly again? You betcha there too. So again, this is a learning experience. We'll figure out what happened. And we'll go and we'll go fly again the same way you know SpaceX has had their little 
glitches here and there. Orbital 2 has had their little glitches here and there. And Sierra Nevada is, again, this is a development vehicle. So you can't go ahead and say, ah, see, the, the whole concept won't work. You know, and I'm sure Boeing is having the same the same problems. So we'll just have to see what happens with CST-100 when it has its turn at bat. I haven't seen uh, their tests yet, but uh, I'm sure once the time comes, uh, they, they too will have their little glitches, but they too will go off and fix it. So again, the, the spacecraft worked wonderfully. The, the software worked wonderfully. It got it right on the center line on uh, runway 22L. Yes, that is the same runway that the space shuttle would, would land if it was landing at Edwards Air Force Base. Somehow or other, mechanically, that left landing gear kind of sort of got stuck there. And, well, there you have it. Will we go ahead and figure out what happened and go fly again? You bet. So you haven't heard the last of Sierra Nevada and Dream Chaser. I'm sure they're going to go back and, and do their homework and, and come back fighting and we'll have a, have a good landing to celebrate next time. Exactly. And just to give you an update on Boeing, um, actually, this was just the other week, I believe. Um, you know how they signed over the deed, uh, essentially, of Orbiter Processing Facility 3 to Boeing so that they could use it to process their CST-100. Well, even though they started in 2011 with the paperwork and the official handoff, they're finally going to start using it in spring 2014, they said. And that will lead to its first test flight in 2016. So that, that's great news. And uh, in honor of Halloween, I just should just really briefly, fast, you know, say very, very quickly here, uh, and I hate to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. It's alive! Alive! Yes, the Orion spacecraft came to life today as we record, record this on Monday, October 28th, 2013. The avionics system was turned on and lit up inside the spacecraft. So the very first Orion vehicle is getting ready for its first test flight. So we haven't really, again, I... I Kind of was talking. I was talking to a whole bunch of people this weekend, trying to tell them that the U.S. space program isn't dead. It didn't end after when shuttle ended. I think that's one of the things that NASA has had a hard time trying to convince the public with. There are so many spacecraft in the pipeline in development. So our next segment, segment, you're going to talk. You're going to talk some more commercial space, but there are so many spacecraft right now in the pipeline it's absolutely ridiculous in a way it's a very exciting time to be you know in in space flight we've so many private companies developing their own spacecraft we've got a couple of suborbital uh spacecraft on the on the drawing board it's pretty darn <laughs> it's it's a pretty eddy time human space flight is not dead here in the united states it's just kind of sort of getting its footing back and when it comes back, it's going to come back big time. Exactly. And uh, by the way, hooray for Orion. Boo hiss at the joke. Uh, but yeah, Mark and I actually saw that uh, spacecraft way before they were even thinking of powering it up when it still didn't have its complete shell on uh, back in 2012. So I'm glad to see that it is progressing along. And that has its test coming up soon, I believe. Yeah, at that point, Sawyer, it was an admirable-looking frame and a uh, partial collection of wiring harnesses, so it's come a long way. 
Oh yeah, definitely. It was uh it honestly looked like a monster at that point if we're making Halloween jokes. <laughs> but um yes, the skeleton uh I would imagine now looks a lot nicer and it'll be even nicer to see it on top of the Delta rocket. And again to Dream Chaser, keep chasing your dreams, it'll happen, don't worry. But as they did say though, the actual flight looked the free fall looked great. And you're looking for something to throw after I mentioned the Halloween joke? Hey. <laughs> I haven't done a bad joke in a long time, so why not two episodes in a row just keep piling them on? Alrighty then, so as you mentioned, the next segment goes to me, and we'll be talking more about commercial space. And uh, this was something that honestly surprised me a little bit. Uh, I was reading this on nasaspaceflight.com. Uh, they were talking about the progress on SpaceX's abort tests coming up. So, obviously, we talked last week about what happened with their Falcon 9 version 1.1 and how that's going on. And we mentioned earlier in this show about the planned February launch date for the next resupply mission to the ISS. But if you'll recall, SpaceX was not only involved in the COTS program, but also in the Commercial Crew Development Program, or CCDEV. And part of that is working on the abort tests for their Dragon. And they have those planned coming up. One of them is planned for spring 2014. That one will be on the test stand. They will then separate it while it's on the test stand up to about 4,000 feet, which they will then deploy the parachute. And this will be testing the engines, which for the Dragon, they creatively call the Super Draco liquid engines, which are built into the side walls of the capsule, which will provide initial launch abort system capability, which I mentioned, but it will also provide for in-flight contingency capability. And, well, how are they going to test that? Why not actually, you know, use a rocket, launch it, and then abort it mid-flight? You heard me right. SpaceX is going to be launching a perfectly good Falcon 9 rocket. And at 73 seconds or so into flight, when the vehicle reaches max Q, or maximum dynamic pressure on the vehicle, they are going to fire those engines and separate it away from the actual stage of the rocket. And that is then planned to have the parachute deploy and splash down into the ocean. Again, that's scheduled for summer of 2014. And they'll have hundreds of sensors, 270 approximately, to measure it, as well as a crash test dummy inside, or an instrumented mannequin, as it's being called, to make sure that any crew inside could survive, you know, whether it be with injuries or not, alive is important. So that's the plan, is not only to use those Draco engines for the planned abort, but also in the future to use it for landing purposes, whether that be on Mars or back on the launch pad, for reusability and for not having to recover it then from the ocean. So, something big from SpaceX. Yes, yeah, so they're going to take the, 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 I guess they're taking the Little Joe concept uh, that we used here during Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo. They're actually going to take a, a, a you know, Falcon 9 and launch it, something similar to what we did on our abort tests for Mercury, Gemini, and of course Apollo, where we had a, a sort of a stand-in spacecraft or a stand-in booster called uh, Little Joe, and Little Joe's job was to go ahead and take uh, this vehicle, uh, take the uh, the the, uh, the capsule, and launch it to a point 
where you could go ahead and test the uh, the escape system. So I guess they're taking a page right out of NASA's book on this one. Not exactly. They're not using a little Joe. They're using a standard Falcon 9. Yeah, I know, but still. But it, yes. It's, it's still the concept is the same. Exactly, of actually launching it up, testing it, and making sure that the vehicle survives and that the crash test dummy inside survives as well. I guess that's also to to take you know, human measurements to, to understand if there was a crew member on board, what you know, what G forces would it would the crew have to feel, and so on and so forth, and on especially on landing, how many G Gs would you pull, that type of thing. You know, I just want to know what they've got against that poor defenseless crash test dummy. Never did anything to hurt anybody. I've got a suggestion. Maybe we can start a poll and see if there's any bureaucrats from Washington that people would like to send up in that poor crash test dummy's place. Oh, oh Mark, believe me. There's about maybe... I could give you a list. Oh, don't get me started. (laughs) Not as a federal employee that I would at all have any uh, contributions of my own, but, well, you know. <laughs> oh, we're not. Oh, just, just give me time. I, I will I will just type up every. Oh, just I'm just not going to touch that with a basketball player from Warsaw. Sorry, 10 football. Get it. Sorry. Bad joke again. But still, uh, I'm just not touching that. Just not going there. I can honestly think of about 530-something of them, but, uh, again, not getting into politics until later this show. So, uh, next we move on to the jokester himself, Mark, but we're going to stray away from commercial a little bit and go back to NASA. Back to NASA. Did you know? I I imagine everybody knows this, but the Internet's no longer limited by dial-up connections for speed, So NASA come up with a question, why should our satellites be limited with slow speed communications? So what I'm going to tell you about is some of the results from the LADEE experiment that's on board, the Lunar Laser Communications Demonstration, another acronym, LLCD. LLCD was powered on and signal with LADEE was acquired by Earth Station on September 27th. Good thing that happened before the government shut down. However, there's a little gap between these two dates that I see here, and, and it the, the gap is, I don't know, but on October 18th, suspiciously, I believe that was after the end of the government shutdown, LLCD began to demonstrate capabilities of laser communications from the moon with the first successful pass occurring on October 18th. Now, there's video that shows some of the highlights of launch, and uh, an animation of the satellite going in orbit around the moon and its communication link to Earth by laser. The reason for uh, NASA's interest in this is that a lot of data communications is amazingly slow. In fact, I remember hearing when uh, some of the details of Curiosity and its uh, landing on Mars that they were going to have a lot more data from the cameras and various instruments that they desperately wanted to get back right after landing because you honestly you never know what's going to happen with the package that's on another planet especially after the rigors of the descent that we that we all saw the highlights of so 
why not have a uh, communication system that's fast? Well, how fast? This LLCD used a pulse laser beam and it transmitted data from the moon to the earth over 239,000 miles at the record-breaking download rate of 622 megabits per second. This is NASA's first system for two-way communication using a laser instead of radio waves. They demonstrated an error-free data upload rate of 20 megabits per second transmitted from a primary ground station in New Mexico to the spacecraft orbiting the moon. And I think about that, it's phenomenal. The Earth is rotating, the moon is in orbit around the Earth, the satellite is in orbit around the moon, and you've got these two laser devices targeting each other and maintaining this phenomenal communications rate. LLCD is the first demonstration of this type of communications. The follow-along that we'll see in 2017 from a launch is called the Laser Communications Relay Demonstration, the LCRD. Don't ask me to keep those straight more than five seconds from now. But it'll be part of a demonstration to, again, develop some new technology capable of operating in space. And it's scheduled to launch, like I said, in 2017. So we got some interesting things ahead in the plain, common, taken-for-granted world of communications. And if you think your internet connection right now is fast, <laughs> I, I think, uh, gang, your, your clock just got cleaned by Laddie. Uh, this past uh, on this past test, so uh, brace yourself. I think too, maybe you might see some commercial applications of this some years down the road. So brace yourself. Uh, fiber optic actually may be you know on its way out, and you just might be using pure light to connect to the internet. Think about that just for a moment, boys and girls. Oh, and just to give a little additional credit, uh, another participant in this demonstration was a, there were three ground stations, one of which was operated by ESA at Tenerife in the Canary Islands. Go ESA. Yes, indeed. But I bet you still, regardless, Skype still wouldn't want to work for us. Again, full disclosure, for 10 weeks this summer, I did intern at the Goddard Space Flight Center, which is uh, one of the major sites behind this. And uh, I was there for an interesting talk about LLCD, the laser communications and just the capabilities of this and how much information it can send at that speed it's just mind-blowing and again from dial-up to fiber it's going to be like going from fiber to laser if not even more drastic if this can you know become a thing back here on earth and i'm hoping that this continues to work amazingly well and that maybe just maybe someday in the future we can have laser guided internet yeah mark as you pointed out uh, this is going to be a boon for communications going forward uh, with uh, with Mars or uh, with any other world that we decide to go ahead and explore, either with robots or with human beings. Uh, this is just going to be uh, just really, really a key point in in trying to keep an eye on on wayward crews going out there to uh, uh, into the unknown. So again, go laddie. Exactly, and. Um... Thank you, Mark. Alrighty then. So, now we are ready to move on to our third and final round. And we're going to start it off with Gene and some asteroids. Thanks, sir. Yeah, the, a little event occurred here in New York on Friday. Or should I say last Friday. Uh, there was a meeting, a 
little bit of a press conference that was held at uh, the American Museum of Natural History and Hayden Planetarium. The host of that particular meeting was none other than Neil deGrasse Tyson, director of the uh, of the Rose Planetarium there. And on the dais were several individuals, two of which are kind of familiar to the listeners of this program. Uh, former astronaut uh, Tom Jones, uh, now with the United Nations. Uh, he is also with the, um, uh, oh, okay, the... Uh, Association of Space Explorers. Uh, he holds the title of their Near-Earth Asteroid Committee Chair. Uh, the Association for Space Explorers is kind of an exclusive group. In order to actually apply for admission into that group, you had to have at least orbited the Earth once. So, again, right now it's a pretty exclusive crew. Uh, another individual that was on the dais, uh, astronaut Rusty Schweikert from Apollo 9. He is also a member of, uh, a fountain, uh, founder of uh, the uh, Association for Space Explorers and a co-founder of the B612 Foundation, which is trying right now to get a, uh, a vehicle called the Sentinel together by the year 2018 to be launched on Sawyer, the aforementioned Falcon 9 booster. Uh, the purpose of Sentinel is to try to go ahead and locate near-Earth asteroids. A uh, few other folks on the on the dais, uh, former astronaut uh, Ed Liu, uh, current, who is also with the B6, B612 organization, Suichi Noguchi, who is uh, also a current astronaut, uh, but also uh, currently uh, the... Uh, I believe I'm trying to see here. Uh, I thought it said he was lead astronaut over at over at JAXA. I'm not sure that's the case, but that's okay. Um, we also had a, a a Romanian astronaut on the dais as well. And the whole point of this was to to tell the United Nations these folks went ahead and went over to the UN and essentially challenged the global community to go ahead and continue the steps into monitoring for near-Earth asteroids. Um, I'll go over some of the points that they they gave to the United Nations. Point number one, they called for UN delegates to brief their respective national policymakers on asteroid hazards and the latest General Assembly actions taken to prevent a near-Earth asteroid impact. Again, if you take in what had occurred in Russia earlier this year, uh, <laughs> you know, this is not really a game. It's not really, you know, Hollywood movie type stuff. This caused real damage and hurt real people. So this is really a, you know, it's, I'm not saying it, it's it's a you know, huge problem, like something's going to go ahead and hit us tomorrow, but you know, there's a lot of stuff out there we don't know about. So we want to go ahead and make sure that we take a careful census of, of what is out there and understand, you know, our own situational awareness. Point number two, called for national policymakers to address impact ha hazards in their disaster response plans and budgets. So in this case here in the United States, it would be FEMA. 
they would have to go ahead and address this possibility of, say, a, an event like like what happened in February of this year happening and say, oh, I don't know, New York, Chicago, something like that. If it could happen in Russia, yeah, it could happen here. It called for national governments to explicitly assign lead responsibility for asteroid hazard response to their space or disaster response agency, creating clear lines of responsibility. Essentially, if there is an asteroid strike similar to what happened in Russia this past winter, who here in the United States would respond? Would it be NASA? Would it be FEMA? Figure out which agency would be there to respond first. My gut feeling would probably be FEMA to go ahead and deal with the uh, national, you know, the, the emergency parts of things. And of course, NASA to go over and actually try to recover this thing and figure out what it is. That's just my personal opinion. Point four, to find the approximately 1 million NEOs capable of threatening the Earth. Called for national policymakers to commit to the modest funds necessary to support the launch of a space-based search telescope by 2020. Essentially, having other nations join the B612 Foundation in launching a satellite that would go ahead and assist them, uh, essentially, in near-Earth asteroids that well, theoretically could be a threat to, to, uh, to Earth. And anticipating these search results call for policymakers to direct their national space agencies to launch within 10 years an international deflection demonstration to alter the path of a small near-Earth asteroid. Now, we're kind of sort of going to do that, or at least it's projected to do that, uh, with the uh, asteroid recovery and retrieval mission that uh, NASA has not really committed to doing just yet. And it's sort of a controversial mission as it is right now, and quite frankly, I'm not that uh, uh, this particular mission is a good example of it. Uh, I believe Rusty Schweiker, during the conversation uh, that was aired over the Internet and was aired by the American Museum of Natural History, and I believe the uh, B612 Foundation also put it on their website. I believe if anybody's interested, it's, it's still able to see. You still can, could see it through the B612 Foundation site there. And, of course, the uh, Association for Space, I think it was broadcast live on their site as well. I didn't check their site before we went on, so I'm not too sure it's available there, but I know it's on b612foundation.org. Um, anyway, uh, so those were the, those were the points that were discussed, but I think Roy Rusty Schweiker during that, that, uh, that presentation said, you don't really need to go out there with, you know, Bruce Willis and two shuttles. You could go out there. All you got to do is just veer, uh, hit it, hard enough so you can veer it off course and that's really about it but the trick is as rusty schweikert said was to figure out which way do you turn it so it doesn't harm anybody for instance during the presentation he gave the example of an asteroid that might be hitting the atlantic ocean dead center okay we want to 
off from the earth. But how far do we veer it off? Do we go ahead and tap it just so to the right? Well, if we tap it, we don't tap it hard enough, it might hit the UK. If we tap it to the left a little bit and we don't tap it hard enough, you know, or we tap, tap it, or excuse me, we tap it too hard, it could theoretically land on our laps here in New York. So the trick is to figure out which way do you which way do you hit this? And that's one of the things that you want to experiment with. But of, of course, put in safeguards that you're not going to go ahead and cause yourself a problem if you're trying to go ahead and experiment with these things. Um, it, it's kind of a, a it's kind of a touchy touchy situation here. But um, these are some of the things that these folks are kind of sort of demanding the U, the UN look into. And I think it's it's kind of a, a worthy thing to do. And as as I believe um, Neil deGrasse Tyson said during the event, it would be we'd kind of look like the dorks of the universe if we had the ability to go ahead and veer an asteroid off its path very simply, but uh, didn't do it because we didn't think it was cost effective to do it. And as I think it was Ed Liu from the B612 Foundation had said, to build Sentinel, the uh, satellite that the B612 Foundation is trying to assemble and put together by 2018, uh, it's going to cost about the amount of money it would cost to build an overpass, a highway or a standard highway overpass. We're talking just a couple of million dollars. And in, I guess, in, in space science, that's not a all that much of a figure. So to try to protect ourselves from a space science point of view, it's really not all that expensive. And they've already got the, the ride assured. They've already kind of sort of paid for the ride with the uh, with the Falcon 9. So we'll just have to uh, watch and see if B612 Foundation can get the uh, can get the satellite hunter off the ground. So if anybody wants to go ahead and find out what the B612 Foundation is up to and find out more about the Sentinel spacecraft and find out too if uh, you want to go ahead and make a donation to that, uh, just look them up at uh, b612foundation.org. Yeah, I mean they they really are a great organization. They've been around for a while now. In case you're not sure, B612 being. Uh, the name of one of the asteroids from uh, the children's book, The Little Prince. Uh, but they actually were recently on uh, the news program 60 Minutes in the United States a couple of weeks ago, and they did a great piece uh, on that, actually with Anderson Cooper. So that's definitely worth taking a look at. And if you want to learn a little bit more, uh, all of those people that you mentioned on the panel, pretty much we've talked to them. Tom Jones, we have talked to him before. But if you really want to learn more about B612, we talked to... Rusty Schweiker previously, and uh, you can listen to that. That's episode 226. So we've got a lot of episodes for you to go back and listen to again, some of our old classic ones. But um, this sounds like it really was, get ready to throw something, a rocking event. Uh, refrain, Sawyer. <laughs> yeah, that was bad. But anyway. Alrighty then, so let's continue along. And this is one that... Um, I, I don't even know how to describe it other than sick, sad, and disgraceful. You may have heard through Twitter, or if you get the <laughs> delivered to you, 
of an interesting editorial, an interesting political cartoon that was inside the paper. And the political cartoon, it's describing the launch of healthcare.gov, which is part of the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare as it's sometimes called, which was supposed to be a website to help people in the United States apply to get government-funded health care. This is not about the politics of it, but this is about the political cartoon itself. In it, you see a very familiar cloud, and that is the one that occurred 73 seconds after the flight of the Space Shuttle Challenger on STS-51L, which, if you might recall, had a problem on board the shuttle. Uh, I guess the easiest way to say it blew up, if we're not getting technical, and um, the crew on board was lost on January 28, 1986. It shows that cloud, and there's a thought bubble coming out of it that says, it's just a glitch, and underneath it it says, the Obamacare launch. This... The only way I can describe it is beyond distasteful, disgusting, and I, I, I don't know. What do you guys think? Since I'm going to do the editing on this, I'm not going to be including the link to the graphic that you just talked about, Sawyer, because I honestly don't think that the news outlet that provided that little piece uh, deserves a single click from any of us. So I'll go with your description, and uh, yeah, I'm offended. Yes, Sawyer, I saw the, uh, the the actual newspaper, and I saw the article that was embedded into it. Now, I know they were trying to make a point about the launch of the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, the website is not working and all this other stuff, but that's immaterial. I think this particular publication, I'm not even going to give them the, the free press here. Well... They went over. It's a publication that's known for going over the line here in New York. Well, they didn't just go over the line with this one. They went over the line and over the cliff. I was just absolutely infuriated by that because it touched a nerve. It was it, it, sorry. It brought me back to that day, back in 1986. Uh, our friend Emily Carney said the same thing. And she's an editor. She she does this for a living. And I wouldn't have let that go. I <laughs> bad taste is is an understatement. I really can't go ahead and actually say in public what I am what I was thinking when I saw that when I opened up this particular newspaper and I saw that. Yes, he was trying. He or she, whoever was the artist, was trying to make a point. But I think it could have been made in a different way and not going ahead and dredging up essentially a national tragedy, not just not just for the, and, and I'm just thinking of the families of this as well. The, the, the families of 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 everybody that was on board that that spacecraft and what their thoughts might have been seeing that. And I was just I was beyond infuriated and I felt bad. I felt bad for the, for the challenger families, number one, but number two is I felt bad for, for, I felt bad for journalism that we had, somebody had to stoop that low to make a point. It just, good Lord. I, I think 
if if shoot if, if anybody wants to go ahead and read Emily Carney's uh, input on um, on the uh, on the spaceflight group website, please read it and see if you don't agree with her and don't agree with us. And that link will be posted in the show notes for sure. Thank you, Mark. Yes, indeed, because I, I just want to take uh, two quotes from that, if you don't mind. Again, this is spaceflightinsider.com. Emily Carney wrote a great editorial called It's Still Too Soon for Those Affected by the Challenger Tragedy. Two of them, quote, Challenger to the space shuttle generation, people born in the late 70s and early 1980s who don't have memories of Apollo or earlier, was like our version of President Kennedy being assassinated. And then she later goes on to say, So using this tragedy as a cheap construct, comparing it to an overburdened health insurance system that was just launched, is an abomination. These are people who are still very much alive, whose lives were forever changed by this accident. And it's true. Being a member of the Challenger Centers for Space Science Education, I've talked to family members from I almost, if not all, of the crew members. I've talked to some of their family, and it is still real to this day over... 25 years later it's amazing how much it still affects people and i agree i I put it out on twitter and uh, a few of the responses that i got were uh let's see tasteless um way too far uh all wrong for so many reasons tasteless tactless and highly inappropriate disgusting just to name a few and again, it, it really is just a kick in the pants to the Challenger families, in my opinion, over a website. Yeah, sorry, that's that scar in the sky that was etched in our memory that very cold January day in, in a way really hasn't healed. And to to use that, wow, I, I just I, I I really have no words. I really don't. I'm <laughs> I'm beyond angry it's it's just oh, infuriating doesn't doesn't describe it and to to go ahead and stoop that low i'm 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 sad i i really am sad i'm sad for 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 journalism it's something that you know, this group here wouldn't even think about doing and it, 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 it's just i don't know tasteless is, is just beyond words Again, don't go to the website of theirs. Don't try and find it. But I highly suggest reading the editorial by Emily Carney on Spaceflight Insider. It's It sums, I think, all of our thoughts up really well and just explains even with her own you know, stories of why this shouldn't have happened. So let's finish it off on a happier, lighter note with Mark. This is kind of a follow-along to a story that Gene brought up last week about how we reintroduced the fact that NASA was back on the Internet. They were back. This is from a website called The Conversation at theconversation.com. The headline is How Twitter Fans Kept NASA Alive During the U.S. Shutdown. Now, I just want to give you a couple of quick stats, and then we're going to roll on out of here. But the hashtag, Things NASA Might Tweet, got a lot of uh, coverage, as you said last week, Gene. And it says here they saw over 15,229 posts with 42.3 million impressions and unquantifiable love. Now, it says 60% of those tweets came from female tweeters, where the majority of space and science enthusiasts are typically male. The interesting thing about this hashtag, things NASA might tweet, is what it didn't say. 
while there were other hashtags that were explicit about the U.S. government shutdown, such as hashtag shutdown, shutdown U.S., shutdown pickup lines, things were critical, they were satirical, the things NASA might tweet hashtag was more positive and constructive. Thank you, Twitterverse, and I know this wasn't selectively just Twitter, that it was Twitter and Facebook and, and many other social media outlets. It's good to hear that there was something positive going on and that will likely have some good effects. Amen, Mark. And I just want to go ahead and say thank you to everybody that, that participated in that. Uh, I, I was one of them, Sawyer. You were one of them. Mark, you were one of them. Uh, a whole other bunch of folks that just really, really went at it and really, really made that successful. And again, it was a positive message that the space community kind of banded together and let the world know NASA may be shut down, but you know, space flight is moving on and NASA, when it comes back, is still going to be doing some stuff. Glad we made a difference, Mark. I didn't know how, how significant it was. Thanks for bringing that up. Yes, indeed. And if that doesn't show the power of Twitter, I, I don't know what does. So follow us there at Talking Space. <laughs> yes, I went for the shameless plug. And with that shameless plug, that brings us to the end of this episode. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. And thanks, Soraya. I just want to give a shout-out to our friends in Europe. I know they are going through a hard time. Mother Nature's really, really throwing them a curveball. Just want to say good luck and Godspeed. Hopefully that the damage out there has not been all that bad and, and you folks recover soon from this little punch that Mother Nature gave you. So hang in there, guys. Yes, indeed. I know there's a bunch of space creeps out there who are going on a wild adventure. So all the best to them as well. And thank you as well for joining us, Mark Ratterman. Thanks, everybody, for bearing with us these last two shows, including this one tonight. Uh, in addition to this one tonight, I've been doing the editing, doing the best I can. Please bear with us. We'll have Sawyer back in the editing seat soon. I plan on it next week, but, uh, you know, after 160 shows, uh, I need three off these last three weeks. So uh, thank you for bearing with us, and thank you, Mark, for doing the editing, because it shows us still sounded pretty darn good, if I do say so myself. Peace cake. Glad to help out. And thank you, of course, for listening, and we hope you will join us again next time. But until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. <laughs>